It is not hard to see that Western culture is in the midst of a crisis. St. John Paul II described this crisis as a culture of death, and Pope Francis has described it as a throwaway culture. Despite this crisis, there is hope because the gospel is the prophetic voice crying out in our cultural wilderness. For over 10 years, the MA in Faith and Culture at the University of St. Thomas in Houston has transformed lay students who want to be the change in our culture by immersing them in the intellectual patrimony of the Catholic Church. In this graduate program that is now online as well as on campus, students are equipped with the wisdom of the Catholic theological, moral, social, and spiritual traditions. Our students come from a variety of backgrounds, including different personal experiences, professional experiences, stages in life, and educational histories. What brings them together is their shared passion to grow intellectually and spiritually through immersion in the best texts that the Catholic tradition has to offer. For more information, Google the Center for Faith and Culture at the University of St. Thomas. Welcome to the podcast. My name is Dr. Stuart Squires. I'm the Associate Director of the Center for Faith and Culture and Associate Professor of Theology at the University of St. Thomas in Houston. The Center for Faith and Culture brings the Catholic voice to the ongoing conversation about the meaning of life and the liberty and pursuit of happiness we hold in common as Americans. Today's guest is Dr. Jared Ortiz. Dr. Ortiz is an Associate Professor of Religion at Hope College in Holland, Michigan. He's also the Executive Director and Co-Founder of the St. Benedict Institute for Catholic Thought, Culture, and Evangelization. He received his PhD and MA in Historical Theology from the Catholic University of America, uh, also an MA in Liberal Arts from St. John's College, and BA in Fundamentals, Issues, and Texts from the University of, Sh Saint University of Chicago. Uh, he has published extensively in 2016 uh, with Fortress Press a book, You Made Us for Yourself, Creation in St. Augustine's Confessions. Uh, in the past couple of years, he's uh, published two edited volumes on deification, uh, deification in the Latin patristic tradition with CUA Press, and just this year, with all the fullness of God, deification in the Christian tradition, 2021. Lexington Books Fortress Academic. Uh, first of all, Dr. Ortiz, uh, welcome and thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me, Stuart. It's good to be here. Uh, so as I just mentioned, you've published several edited volumes on deification, which is a term I think many in my audience may have never heard before. So that's what I'd like us to talk about. Why don't we start by defining our term? What is deification? Thank you, Stuart. Good question. So uh, deification goes under a number of terms. So deification, divinization, theosis, all these are synonyms. Uh, the word itself, deification, comes from two Latin words, deus and facere, which means to make God or to make into God or to make divine. Um, I think one way to understand that in Christian terms, the way Christians use this term, is deification is our transforming union with God. It's God sharing his divine life with us or our participation in God's own life. To understand it maybe in Trinitarian terms, we might say 
it's how the Holy Spirit unites us to the Father by conforming us to Christ. So it is the path of God-likeness. It's the way that God elevates our nature and makes us more like him. In, when you say makes us more like him, does that mean uh, that Christ is an example and we imitate him more? Um, you know well my uh, uh, research interests. That sounds a little Pelagian to me that we're just sort of following Christ as an example. So how is this different from, uh, from that idea of Christ? Uh, we just sort of imitate him better. Well, it certainly is um, an imitation of Christ. So, I mean, the Pelagians are right, at least to one extent, that, of course, we have to imitate Christ. And even Pelagius' opponents would say we have to imitate Christ. Um, but I think the way that um, most of the Orthodox early Christians understood imitation was that imitation was also participation. Now, what's really interesting is the word imitation and the word image have the same root there, uh, that I am. That means those two words are, are related. And so the thing is, uh, we're made in the image of God. And so when we imitate Christ, uh, we're not just doing something external. We're not just doing this um, mirror. We're not just doing this mimicry. Um, but as we are imitating Christ, we're actually being transformed as we're imitating Christ, we're actually internally becoming more like him. Uh, as we're imitating Christ, we're actually receiving more of God's life and becoming more, uh, more the image of God, or we're being perfected as the image of God. So imitation, again, it's not just mimicry, not just this thing we sort of um, do externally, but imitation does mean participation and therefore transformation. Is this um, a specifically Catholic idea or Eastern Orthodox idea, or is this an idea that's shared among uh, Christians? I, I mentioned that m many of my Catholic audience probably doesn't know this, but um, is this a term that is known uh, or an idea that is known outside of the Catholic tradition and other uh, maybe Protestant traditions? Yes, it is. And that's, I think, surprising to a lot of people. So both of the edited volumes I, <clears throat> I, I put together were meant to um, push back against two common narratives. So the first edited volume is deification in the Latin patristic tradition. So one common idea is that uh, it's only the Orthodox or the Greek Orthodox or the early Greek Christians who have this idea of deification. And so what I show in that edited volume is that in the liturgy and then in every single major figure in the Latin West for the first five or six centuries, you see this idea of deification being used. So the idea is in both the East and the West in the early church. Uh, and the reason it's there is because it's a biblical idea. Uh, which is the same principle I used in the second edited volume, which is uh, with all the fullness of God, deification and Christian tradition, uh, which has um, nine essays from nine different denominations. Uh, it has a Catholic and an Orthodox and then seven Protestant denominations and then a few sort of practical essays in, in, at the end. 
Um, because Protestants are reading the same scriptures, because Protestants are drawing on the same Christian tradition, uh, and sometimes different strands of that tradition than, than Catholics would or Orthodox would, but because they're drawing on the same tradition, you find that in every one of the major Protestant denominations, uh, there is present uh, some notion of deification, sometimes stronger, sometimes weaker. Again, sometimes different emphases, but all of the uh, Protestant denominations have some notion, at least traditionally have some notion of deification. Um, you sort of mentioned, well, I, I don't, in, in, in some of the writings I've read, read your books, um, it, it sounds like this idea of deification, as you say, was in the early church, and then maybe I, I get the impression that it sort of disappeared, and then only in the past hundred years or so has been sort of uh, rediscovered. Um, why is it that do you think that uh, that this idea sort of disappeared or it got sort of papered over? Uh, and then has only been sort of in the past maybe 100 years or so become uh, a central focus, not only in academic scholarship, but but in the spiritual lives of Christians. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think in one way, I would say it's never quite been lost. Um, you can find authors from every century just to follow the Catholic tradition from every century who are writing on this. Um, and that's true in the, in the so-called dark ages and the middle ages, the early and the late and the, uh, this, it's in the Council of Trent. Um, you see this in the 17th, 18th century, Matthias Shaban in the 19th century. The 20th century is a very rich time. Um, so I think that this idea of deification is present throughout the tradition. But I do think you're right that there's different um, there's different degrees to which Christians are aware of this teaching, and certainly Christians in the pews, and maybe even certainly in more popular levels, the way you know um, theologians or those who are translating theology for the masses, the way that they are engaging these ideas. So I think sometimes it just goes under different terms. Um, so sometimes, you know, at least in the early 20th century and this comes out of the Middle Ages, you have a really strong emphasis on something like sanctifying grace. And what is that? Well, what is grace? Well, grace is participation in God. It's, God. it's God's free gift of himself to us. And what does sanctify mean? It means to make holy, right? So it's the grace that makes us holy. That's what sanctifying grace is. Well, we know from the Bible that um, we're commanded to be holy as God is holy and that there's only one who is holy. And so if we're holy, that means we're sharing in God's very life in some way. So if you have this sort of, if you look at notions of sanctifying grace, you'll find that structurally they're very similar to um, the discussions of deification. So I think on the one hand, there's, uh, we can sort of miss its presence because it goes under different terms. Uh, even terms like imitation, uh, you see that um, uh, when used properly, not like the Pelagians, but <laughs> imitation when used properly is 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 a, de a deification term or participation, um, uh, union with God. There's all sorts of really beautiful um, uh, ways that it's described. Um, but I think you're right that there has been a, a, a retrieval of this um, and, and a sort of elevating of it to the consciousness of uh, scholars for sure, but also for um, seminarians and people, people in the pews. I find more and more young um, 
uh, the, the young seminarians who come to our parish to do their intern year, they're all aware of this idea and they're all thrilled when they learn that I write about it and they ask me for books and recommendations and my essays and they're just thrilled about it. We have a young pastor who actually preaches on it almost every other week. Uh, again, not, not always by name. Uh, he won't always say deification, right? Because it can yeah. be a confusing term. Um, <clears throat> but I think, I think part of it is that... Um, Again, part of it is, I think, just this flood of scholarship that's that's sort of raising it, it, it to the consciousness of everybody. But I think the other thing is that it really is a beautiful and compelling vision of the Christian life and of salvation. And that gets people excited. And so we're looking for beautiful ways of presenting the gospel in our dark times. And I think mm -hmm. this is a, a, an attractive way of doing it. Uh, you mentioned that the word, of course, deification is not in the Bible, but that doesn't mean much. There are a lot of words in Christian vocabulary that aren't in the Bible. Uh, the Trinity, for example, uh, that is a term first used by Tertullian. So can't find that term in the Bible, but the idea of deification is in the Bible. Can you point, point to a few biblical passages that get to this idea, even if the word, is, word itself is not used? Sure, I'll start with some uh, famous ones and then move backwards to maybe some less famous ones that might be uh, interesting. So probably the most famous one is 2 Peter 1.4, um, where Peter says that God has given us these precious and very glorious promises, these very great promises that we might escape the corruption of the world and become partakers of the divine nature. So that phrase, partakers of the divine nature, is often the title of many deification books. Um, 2 Peter 1, 4. So that's probably the most sort of famous and sort of clear line. Psalm 81 or Psalm 82, if you're using the Septuagint, uh, uh, has God speaking to people saying, you are gods, uh, but because you've abandoned me, you will be, um, uh, you'll, you'll die like men, but you are gods and sons of the most high. And that's the same line that Christ takes up in um, the gospel of John 10, 34. Uh, to, to use that and to defend his own divinity is to say, look, we, we talk about other humans as gods, and, and, but I am the son of God. Um, so that's, those are sort of the two most famous places. Uh, the, other place, um, the other places we see this are certainly things like um, uh, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, where Paul gives us what's called the exchange formula, which becomes very famous uh, later on. Paul says there, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. So what's poverty and richness? Obviously not money, uh, but you have God who empties himself and takes the form of a slave being born in the likeness of men. So you have God who's uh, divine, who empties himself of his glory, of his recognition, and uh, becomes poor, becomes a human being, right? Uh, the likeness of men, so that by his poverty, by his humanity, we might become rich, that we might become divine in some way. And you see this formula uh, most famously and concisely articulated by Athanasius, God became man so that uh, men might become God, right? That's a very bold formulation there, but it's based on that same uh, sort of Pauline principle. Um, one other place I would point, I mean, I could point to, you know, a uh, hundred more verses, but one, one place that I think is really interesting to think about is Genesis 3. 
we could go through Genesis 1 and 2 if you like, but Genesis 3 is really interesting because uh, a lot of people say, well, well, look, deification is wrong uh, because it's the temptation of the devil, right? Because the devil says, uh, look, woman, eat this fruit and you will become like God or you will become gods or you, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, right? And so you think deification is the temptation of the devil. Um, but it's very, very interesting, I think. I think this actually confirms deification even more because you think of man and woman in the garden, uh, they have everything they need, right? They're, they're given everything, right? So they have the whole world is, is theirs. But what they don't have um, yet is salvation. What they don't have is perfect union with God. They're in harmony with God, but that's the garden's the beginning, not the end, right? So they have to pass these tests. They have to live in the garden. They have to... Um, uh, they, have, they have more to advance or more to progress. And so what the serpent does is hold out the destiny of human beings. You'll be like gods. But he, but, he, but he gives them a false means of getting there. And that's what the devil always does. The devil always speaks in half-truths, right? If, every, if it was completely untrue, it would be unbelievable, right? So it has to be partially true. And that's the devil always mixes truth and falsehood. Right. So he says, you'll be like gods, but, in, but he says, by reaching out and grabbing the fruit, by disobeying God, you'll be like God, right? Uh, because they'll know good and evil, right? And so they do. And in one way, they are like God. They say, I will determine what's good and evil for myself. I'm going to reach out and be like God and determine good and evil. Um, <clears throat> but that's not the way we become gods, not by disobeying God, but by following God, not by reaching out and grabbing it but by receiving God's life, right? not by demanding it, um, but by being uh, transformed by God's gift. Right? Um, so I think you can see even there in uh, Genesis 3, right, the, the sort of promise of our deification put out there in a false way, right? um, but uh, a glimpse of what could have been, um, and then, of course, the wrong way to do it. So the um, so this last you gave multiple biblical examples and this last one from Genesis sort of tempting us with sort of a false divinity sort of brings to mind the idea of idolatry uh, certainly in Psalm eighty two uh, the claim that we are like gods Athanasius's exchange formula a lot of this can uh, maybe scare some people by by rubbing up too closely to the idea of idolatry of, of that is um, of, of we become gods right um, uh, in, a, in a false sense so maybe we should explore this idea a little bit more so that we we're clear that uh, we're not we're not sort of proposing a a break in the in the in the line between creator and creation um so so how or why doesn't this fall into a sort of of, of an idolatry right um because we're never god by ourselves and we're never a replacement for god we're never an object of worship it's actually worship that makes us gods it's worship that makes us more divine because what does worship do? When we worship the true God, what happens? Uh, then we're close to him. We're united to him. We have an exchange with him. We're intimate with him, right? That's what worshiping God is. We lift up our hearts and they are in heaven. Um, 
And so as we are worshiping God, we are being transformed. And how are we being transformed? It's by God giving us more and more of his life. But it's his life. It's divine life that's now in us, right? And so if divine life is now in us, we are becoming more divine. Now, I, I, I agree with you that, you know, saying that we become gods is very shocking and very confusing, especially to us nowadays. Um, but this language is in the tradition, and so I, I use it in part because it does have some, some shock factor. Um, but yeah, there's a line from Augustine uh, right here. He says, look, we've been made sons of God, right? Which honestly, if you think about it, is no less shocking uh, to be called a son of God. We say this all the time, right? We're sons right. and daughters of God. There's a band called Sons and Daughters of God, right? Uh, <laughs> but it's, 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 it's a radical, shocking, insane yeah. thing to say. God doesn't have, uh, God has one son, right? This right. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He only has one son. But we go around saying, oh, I'm a son of God. That's my identity. I'm a daughter of God. Um, and we are, and so if we're baptized, we are, that's absolutely right. But, uh, you know, at the Catholic liturgy, uh, before we, we pray the Lord's prayer, the priest says, and so we dare to say mm -hmm. our father, right? We dare to say something so shocking, uh, that, that we would call God our father, right? Mm -hmm. Um, but if we've been made sons of God, then we've also been made gods, right? Because we've been born again. Right, not by um, uh, the will of the flesh, uh, not by blood, but uh, we've been begotten of God. Right, so we now share in God's divine nature, and it's because God has given us some of His life, His divine life, that the Church Fathers made so bold to say that we become gods. And again, there's the biblical warrant, of course, in Psalm uh, 81, 82, um, and in John 10, that uses that kind of um, uh, shocking language. Um, but you also see, it's our last point, last biblical sure, sure. point about how shocking this is. If you think about 1 John 3, and he says, see what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are, right? There's like, he kind of adds on that, like, that sense of wonder, right? Yeah. See what love the Father has given us that we should be called sons of God, right? We're not naturally sons of God, right? This is a gift um, that we can be called this. And we are this, hmm. that we are actually sons of God through our rebirth and baptism. What role do the sacraments in particular, the Eucharist, what, what role do they play in deification? Uh, an essential role, really, um, let's start with baptism, since I was just there, because you need baptism before you need the Eucharist. <clears throat> right. But um, so if you think about baptism, so think about Romans 6, 3, we are baptized into Jesus Christ. I always love that into there in Romans 6, 3, um, because when we're when we're not baptized we're outside of christ and when we're baptized we enter into christ we're translated as the council trend says translated from being a son of uh, adam to a son of god uh, and we become a part of christ's body we become a member of christ's body we become the body of christ which again is a radical and shocking thing to say we we are so used to saying this that it's we've become numb to how radical um, and awe-inspiring it should be that we are members of Christ's body. Well, you think, who is Christ? Christ is true God and true man, right? He is one divine person in two natures, and we become part of his body. We become part of his humanity, but his humanity is inseparable from his divinity. 
And so if we share in the things that are Christ, right, if we become part of his body, then we share in all the things that are Christ. So that's why we can be called a son of God, because Christ is a son. That's why we have the Holy Spirit, because that's Christ's spirit. Uh, that's why we share in the divine nature. We become partakers of the divine nature, because Christ is divine, and his humanity is inseparable from his divinity. So it's baptism that gives us this, uh, the beginning of this divine life, right? It not only washes away our sins, right, which is kind of what we focus on, but that's really sort of the least of it. Um, it's obviously essential, right? We're sort of redeemed, we're bought back from, from the devil, um, uh, but we're saved from those bad things, right, sin and death. But what are we saved for? Well, we're saved for this new life in Christ, so that would be the sort of the first thing is just the power of baptism, right? Leo the Great says, Christians, remember your dignity. Remember your dignity. You have been made a partaker of the divine nature. Do not go back to your way, your former way of life, your, your, your corrupt way of life. Uh, remember your dignity, right? That you have God's life in you. Um, and I think that's so powerful and so beautiful. I was just reading uh, an article today where the, it's a, just the, it's a line in passing that said the mother would, would uh, bless her children before bed and just say, remember you're baptized. Mm. Remember you were baptized. Um, so, um, so that's baptism, right? And, uh, and we should all remember we are baptized, not just right. this nice symbol we do, but the beginning of our divine life, the beginning of becoming a a. Christian, not just a Christian uh, as a title, but becoming Christ himself, because we are his body, right? So we become Christ, because we are a member of his body. But here's the beautiful thing, because you wanted to talk about the Eucharist, is um, you think about uh, the, we become part of the body of Christ, right? Which is uh, that the word body of Christ in the Bible has three meanings, right? It's his physical incarnate body and his resurrected body. Uh, it's the church is the body of Christ, and then also the Eucharist is the body of Christ. So it's really remarkable to think about those things. So here we are as the body of Christ, uh, the church, and then we gather as the body of Christ uh, on Sunday uh, for, for Mass, and then the priest takes his bread and wine and he transforms it into the body of Christ. And we go up and we, we, we what the priest says, the body of Christ, and we say, Amen, it is true. And there's a beautiful sermon Augustine has where he says, um, when you say amen, you say amen to the mystery that is you. Behold yourself in the Eucharist. You are the body of Christ. This is the body of Christ. Be what you see, become what you are. Right. So you see the Eucharist, it is the body of Christ. And you need to become the body of Christ. Right. Because as a church, we're a mixed body. Right. Where there's wheat and weeds in the kingdom. And there's wheat and weeds in our own hearts. Right. We're a mixed body. But the Eucharist is the body of Christ in the pure sense. It's, it's the sacrifice of Christ made present again. Um, so when we go up to receive the Eucharist, you know, we see what we should be. And then we're given the grace to, to become that. Um, <clears throat> now, if you think about uh, the Eucharist, you know, at least as, as we uh, Catholics understand it, right, that the Eucharist is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of, of Christ. Um, and as your grandmother says, you know, you are what you eat. <laughs> um and so if you eat uh if, if you're eating the body blood soul and divinity of christ then you're becoming more divine um cardinal sarah has a beautiful line where he says we must become that little white host we must be transubstantiated 
I mean, it's a, it's a very bold formula that Cardinal Seurat gives us. Uh, we must be transubstantiated, but which means we have to let God's divine life take over every aspect of our being, our mind, our heart, our voice, our body, uh, our breathing, uh, our thinking, our imagination, our feeling, right? That all of it needs to be taken over um, by the life of God. And the Eucharist, I think, is, I think all the sacraments, but the Eucharist, which is the source and summit, is the primary means um, uh, and, and the, the, the most potent means by which this transformation happens. It is not hard to see that Western culture is in the midst of a crisis. St. John Paul II described this crisis as a culture of death, and Pope Francis has described it as a throwaway culture. Despite this crisis, there is hope, because the gospel is the prophetic voice crying out in our cultural wilderness. For over 10 years, the MA in Faith and Culture at the University of St. Thomas in Houston has transformed lay students who want to be the change in our culture by immersing them in the intellectual patrimony of the Catholic Church. In this graduate program that is now online as well as on campus, students are equipped with the wisdom of the Catholic theological, moral, social, and spiritual traditions. Our students come from a variety of backgrounds, including different personal experiences, professional experiences, stages in life, and educational histories. What brings them together is their shared passion to grow intellectually and spiritually through immersion in the best texts that the Catholic tradition has to offer. For more information, Google the Center for Faith and Culture at the University of St. Thomas. Let's try to bring this to a bit more of a concrete um, uh, perspective. Um, maybe it, maybe asking it a little bit differently, how can we sort of see or, or what are the fruits of deification? So we, we participate in the divine life of God. I, uh, you know, sort of someday, uh, hopefully at the resurrection, we are, we are, you know, brought into, into the fullness of, of uh, the divine life. But in, in the, this, in this valley of tears that we're currently living in, <laughs> what, um, uh, what are the sort of concrete fruits or, or the manifestations of a life of deification? Yeah, so let me just start with an image and then get into that question. So one of the famous images from the early church is of an iron in the fire, right? And the fire is God himself or God's life. And we're the iron, which can be hot or cold. And then if we're placed in the fire, we start to heat up. And of course, by sin, we can sort of pull ourselves out of the fire. But if we stay united, we stay in the fire, right, uh, and participate in this life of grace, cooperate with God, we just get hotter and hotter and hotter, right? And this is what the saints do, right, is they stay in the fire until, um, until they take in the fire through all of their pores, through all, through all of their, um, through all of their being. And then if you've ever seen uh, pictures of iron in the fire, or you can find videos on YouTube, um, uh, the iron, uh, you know, if, if you compare it to the fire, it looks like fire, it acts like fire, it glows like fire. If you touched it, you'd be burnt like fire. Um, and I think that's the way to sort of think about this. I mean, so the concrete, what does this concretely look like? 
uh, that if you're united to God, you are being transformed. And that's what um, the Christian life is about, is transformation in God. It's about union with God. It's about this love affair with God that transforms us. And so the first fruits of that are that uh, our sins are going to be purged away, that our attachment to sin is going to be purged away, uh, that the frequency of our sin is going to be purged away, right? So it's going to be this negative sort of burning away of the bad. But then the hotter we get, the more that we can set other people on fire. Uh, the more that um, the, when we speak words or when we do actions or when we people encounter us, they're going to encounter not just us, but they're going to encounter God. And you see this, um, you certainly see this in the life of the saints. I mean, Mother Teresa is always such a wonderful example because she was famous and everyone sort of knew about her. But this was the, but if you've ever met any of her nuns, you know this is the same encounter, which is that um, you, you, you feel God when you're around her, that, that people would go and they would see this shriveled up uh, little old woman and they would somehow say there is something um there's something more than human here uh, that would touch people's lives and make them want to live differently um but you know this too if you ever um you know if, if you even have a friend of yours or a mentor who who's who's you know on their way to holiness mm. right that um sometimes they say these words you know and maybe it was the words that led to your conversion or the words that made you want to follow jesus uh seriously and not half-heartedly anymore right that that their words are more than words right, right. um that if you just sort of measured up the words or wrote them down or someone else said them they would have just been uh, words that came and passed away but when they spoke them uh they it was the word of god right to you um and that word of god you know was an arrow in your heart or was 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 a fire that enkindled um uh the the dead wood <laughs> inside you um and, and made you want to live this christian life um so i mean i think um i think that would be sort of the concrete fruits let me say one more um sure. uh that um of this, we've been singing this song at my church. It's a contemporary hymn. Uh, Sister Dolores Dufner wrote it, and it's uh, slightly sentimental, but for the most part, very beautiful. But it, she she takes this line from Augustine. She says, "Amen to the body of Christ we receive, um, bread for the fullness of life." Right. So we we say "Amen" to the Eucharist, which is bread for the fullness of life, mm. uh, which is divine life, God's life. And then she says, then the next line of the chorus is, amen to the body of Christ, we become bread for the life of the world, sure. right? So we say amen to the Eucharist, right? Which is God's life. We receive it. We become the body of Christ. We become transformed. We have God's life in us. And now we are that bread, mm -hmm. uh, which is for the life of the world, right? And we're, now we need to bring God's life to the world uh, and, and infuse the world um, uh, with, with God's life. And then each verse is a different line from Matthew 25, that we go out and um, we serve Christ in the poor and in the naked and the hungry and the thirsty and in prison. Um, and that's, I think, the concrete fruits of, mm -hmm. of, of deification, right, is that we become uh, that the Christ gives us his life so that we can infuse that life into the world by doing, uh, doing the, the, the works of Christ. So it sounds like there's a, a direct connection between um, 
deification and uh, Catholic social justice. Um, could you expand more on that? I mean, you know, certainly when we think about secular social justice, that's not necessarily a bad thing. There's overlap, I think, between Catholic social justice and and uh, secular social justice. But it sounds like you're saying here that Catholic social justice is not rooted in just, you know, waking up one day and saying, hey, I want to be a nice person, um, but it's grounded in something entirely different. Can you expand on that a bit idea? That yeah, makes- no, I'm glad. I'm glad you asked that. I mean, um, I remember when I was um, working with students on this years ago and had one one very, very precociously bright student say, uh, Dr. Ortiz, I love this. I love deification. Um, but um, this sounds just like personal piety, you know, and yeah. she was in this other program where they were all social justice and she's like, I don't see how these things go together and it's tearing me apart. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> but I think, um, you know, I take, uh, I, I, I take again this idea from Augustine um, is that uh, there's, no, there's no justice without just people. Um, and there's only one truly just person, and that's Christ. Uh, and so if we want a just society, then we need to be rooted in Christ. Uh, he is the vine, and we are the branches. And uh, if we uh, are not uh, bearing fruit, then we are cut off. <laughs> right. um, but that image of vine and branches, of course, is a deification uh, Im- image. Um that you have God in his life and that is coursing through uh, the vine and then out to us, the branches, so that we can bear, that we can bear fruit. So again, I think if we are not just, we cannot do justice. Um, we might have nice ideas about policy and other nice things, and some are better and some are worse, but if we are not rooted in Christ, then we cannot be uh, righteous, we cannot be just, and then therefore we cannot do just things in the world. We just, um, if, if we are not rooted in Christ, we just uh, recreate our own sins out in the world. Hmm. Um, and I think that's probably the key difference between, you know, secular social justice and truly Christian social justice. And again, not that Christians always live this, don't get me wrong. They often are recreating their own sins out in the oh, world. Sure. Sure. Um, so I, I don't want to make that too stark a contrast. But um, yeah, I, I remember this. There's a very a striking essay um, or a talk that um, Henry Nowen gave um, about uh, when he had moved up to La Arche to take care of a severely mentally disabled uh, young man. Um, uh, and he was giving all these talks around the world about how to make peace. And after living with this severely disabled man uh, for um, uh, about a year, he just, he came to realize that he said, there's really no difference between the peacemakers and the warmongers. Um, we're, we're still seeking ourselves first, our own ideas. We're still asserting our own way on the world. Ours looks nicer than theirs, but it's, it's the same self-assertion. It's the same selfishness. It's the same pride. It's the same envy. It's the same, um, it's the same sin just manifest in a different way and on a different scope. Mm -hmm. Right. And so encountering this severely disabled man allowed him to see, um, uh, a, a different way of being in the world that allowed God's presence to come in and transform the world through powerlessness, 
right? Which is, which is God's way. How or why is this important for the average Christian? Uh, you'd mentioned earlier, you know, seminarians getting excited about this, Mother Teresa, Saint Saint Teresa of Calcutta. Uh, you know, we talked about Athanasius and Augustine and and scholarship. Um, but what about the average Christian in the pew? Yeah, <clears throat> I think um, I think a lot of Christians, um, if you think about salvation. Uh, or what do we need to do to get to heaven or something like that? It's usually the way we think about it. And they'll say something like, okay, well, you know, right, baptism is washing away your sins, and maybe I have to go to confession. That's a very small percentage of Catholics nowadays. Um, but, um, you know, I'm saved from my sins, and that's what salvation is, and Jesus died for my sins, right? So on the one hand, that, that's absolutely right, right? Jesus did die for our sins, um, and baptism does that. Um, and that's all essential and important. But again, we're saved from sin, but again, what are we saved for? So I think this idea of deification, this vision of deification gives us um, that, the answer to that question, what are we saved for? Um, the other the reason I think it's important, and this is, is, is related, is I think it's very easy for us to think of the Christian life as doing certain things. I go to mass every Sunday, I pray my rosary once a week, I do X, Y, and Z, I serve at the soup kitchen, you know, I'm a good person, I have checked the boxes. And again, those are all good and I think necessary things to do. Uh, but I think this understanding of deification as a union with God that transforms us and that it's a process that began in your baptism or with the first touch of grace that led to your baptism, um, that it began there and will be complete in the resurrection is um, an ennobling and powerful and truer vision of what the Christian life looks like. That it's this, that we are meant, again, not just to do nice things in a Pelagian way for Jesus, um, but we are meant to be in a kind of profound intimacy with God that changes us from the inside out and every aspect of us. And that's, yeah, I don't know. That to me is a much more inspiring vision of, of the Christian life than, you know, go to church on Sundays and, and do these, do these things and you'll be okay. Two final questions. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, you've spent a lot of time on this question in your research. Uh, as I said, you've got two edited volumes. Um, I always like to ask scholars, you know, when you write a book or edit a book, it takes years to do and, and occupies a very large part of your day. Um, so if you're going to write or edit books on this topic, it's important to you for some reason. So why is this an important issue that you've decided in the past few years to, to devote so much time to exploring it? Yeah, that's a good question. I think there's a scholarly answer and a personal answer. Um, and I, I think they're related. Um, but uh, the, the sort of scholarly answer was that I saw that there was deep misunderstanding about this topic that um, in, um, that people were, um, you know, that this idea that it was only in the East um, or that uh, and that Catholics didn't have it or, you know, whatever, the, those sort of misunderstandings. And that, you know, most Christians were being deprived of what was rightfully theirs, which is this beautiful vision, this beautiful 
beautiful biblical vision of salvation. Um, and that's related in some ways to the personal is that I remember, um, I don't remember exactly when I first heard about deification. I think it was probably listening to old Scott Hahn talks on cassette tapes. <laughs> uh, shows you how old I am. Um, and I guess Scott Hahn talks a lot about this. Usually talks about it in terms of divine sonship and becoming sons of God. And he'll occasionally use the technical terms. But um, Hahn talks about this all the time. Um, and I think I remember, you know, that that just opened up a horizon for me that had just not been open before. Mm. And I really just fell in love with not just I don't want to say the idea of it, but that this really changed the way I prayed and it changed the way I went to mass and it changed the way that I received the sacraments and it changed the way I interacted with people and that I taught my students and um again, it just sort of elevates one's horizon and I think transforms one's uh, not just understanding, but again, way of being in the world. Um, and so I think part of the scholarly project um, was motivated by one, just clearing up those misunderstandings, but two, just wanting to share this, this beautiful Christian vision with more people um, that they really, that they really are missing out um, if they don't have some sense of, you know, eye has not seen, ear has not heard what God has prepared for those who love him. Um, but he's revealed it to us, you know, in, in his son. And I wanted to share that with as many people as possible. Final question. Uh, I mentioned earlier, you're an associate professor of religion at Hope College. You're also the executive director and co-founder of the St. Benedict Institute for Catholic Thought, Culture, and Evangelization. Uh, tell us about the St. Benedict Institute. Uh, what is its mission and uh, programming? Yeah, St. Benedict Institute was founded to deify the Christians in uh, Holland, Michigan. <laughs> Um, it's only partially joking, but no, I was hired eight years ago at Hope College to teach Catholic theology. And what I found very early on was that there was a lot of Catholics here who had stopped practicing their faith in, but in the same um, proportion as the country, which is horrifying. 85% of college age Catholics don't practice their faith. And that's what I found at Hope. And that's what is true around the country. Uh, and this is a real crisis. Um, uh, that 85% of Catholic kids are not practicing their faith. And then the statistics are, if they don't get caught by age 23, there's less than a 15 or 10 to 15% chance that they'll ever come back mm -hmm. to the faith. So college is really this crucial time for catching uh, kids uh, and forming them in their faith. Um, so you know, we founded the St. Benedict Institute to be that Catholic presence on campus. We um, have an intellectual wing and a spiritual wing. Um, we do intellectual programming, spiritual programming, trying to form the whole person. Um, and we named it after St. Benedict because he founded these monasteries in the so-called Dark Ages, uh, which were really these beautiful um, oases of sanity and holiness um, and learning. And people were drawn to them. And so you could read these stories about these monks going out to these swamps and emptying the swamps and turning them into gardens and then building monasteries there and then farms and then people moving there and, and little villages and towns and then cities grow up with the monastery as the, as the kind of nucleus. And I call that, um, that 
power, that process, I call that spiritual gravity. Mm. And so we found at the St. Benedict Institute to be that place of spiritual gravity where we focused on God and the things of God. We focused on the highest things um, where we took holiness uh, seriously ourselves. And we're hoping to draw people, uh, draw students here at Hope College uh, back to the faith um, so that they could find an oasis of, of Catholicism and beautiful Catholicism and compelling Catholicism um, uh, easily and uh, to make it easier for them to be good, as Dorothy Day used to say, sure. to make it easier for them to be Catholic. So that's why we found the St. Benedict Institute um, five, six years ago. And yeah, we've been going strong ever since. Well, Dr. Ortiz, uh, thank you so much for your time today talking about uh, this uh, perplexing, but I think really central issue of deification. Thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure. It is not hard to see that Western culture is in the midst of a crisis. St. John Paul II described this crisis as a culture of death, and Pope Francis has described it as a throwaway culture. Despite this crisis, there is hope because the gospel is the prophetic voice crying out in our cultural wilderness. For over 10 years, the MA in Faith and Culture at the University of St. Thomas in Houston has transformed lay students who want to be the change in our culture by immersing them in the intellectual patrimony of the Catholic Church. In this graduate program that is now online as well as on campus, Students are equipped with the wisdom of the Catholic theological, moral, social, and spiritual traditions. Our students come from a variety of backgrounds, including different personal experiences, professional experiences, stages in life, and educational histories. What brings them together is their shared passion to grow intellectually and spiritually through immersion in the best texts that the Catholic tradition has to offer. For more information, Google the Center for Faith and Culture at the University of St. Thomas.